We're going to read the Bible now. So if you'd like to open up, we're going to look at Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11, verse 1. One day Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. He said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. And lead us not into temptation. I'm going to uh, invite Andrew Hurd to come up the front. Now, Andrew is the lead pastor of uh, EV Church. You probably already know that, but it uh, is one of the most fruitful churches in Australia at the moment in multiplying itself. Uh, he's a guy who loves Jesus. He loves seeing guys raised up, people raised up, inspired and equipped to uh, do church planning. And he's a great Bible teacher, which we're fortunate for. Thanks, Andrew. Thank you. Thank you for the introduction. Yeah. Well, it's great to be here. Rudy Hill. I've been looking forward to coming to Rudy Hill for a long, long time. So it's, uh, and I've just heard it's the last place you can feel the sea breeze. Did you know that? So uh, on top of the hill, which is a thing we all ought to go and do. Is there a Rudy Hill hill somewhere that we ought to... Has Ray gone, has he? Where, somebody knows Rudy Hill. Where do we go? Is there some place near here? Across the railway line. I'm actually uh, keen to go there, so if anyone's up for it, we'll make a time later. Rudy Hill, RSL, we'll go there too. It's a cultural experience to be here. Um, now, I'm, uh, I'm going to pray, and we're going to look at the Scriptures together. I'm going to do the uh, very ordinary task of just explaining a bit of the Bible with you today. Uh, the ordinary task, which, as I trust you're aware, is an incredibly spectacular task of explaining the Scriptures together. But how about I pray as we do that, that God might bless us. Heavenly Father, we do ask, please, that you might help us to appreciate and deepen our understanding of you and your purposes. And we ask that you might help us do that through the insights you give through the scriptures you've so uh, carefully uh, inspired, laid down, preserved for us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, at one level, what we'll be doing is just diving into the life and ministry of Jesus in a couple of passages through Luke's Gospel. So Luke 11 will be the first one we'll be looking at. Uh, And I just want to note something of the impact of those words. But at another level, the group of three texts that we'll be looking at together, so chapter 11, a couple of places there, and then into chapter 12, uh, will be very significant, I think, for us and our ministry. Because these three sections open a window into a far larger perspective of Jesus his purposes, and therefore us and our purposes. So my hope is that we'll listen, not just listen to the word with no particular agenda, I want us to do that, just to unpack the Bible, um, but I also want us to see the bigger movement and the, the bigger purposes that come from these passages. So that's my intention with you. So let's dive into Luke 11. It's Jesus' famous teaching on prayer. The context is that the disciples have just asked Jesus to teach them to pray. There in verse 1. Lord, teach us to pray just as John taught his disciples. It appears that they've asked him to do this because they've seen him do it often. And of course you may well know Luke's gospel is the one that does give us the greatest insight into Jesus, the prayer. You get Jesus praying in Luke chapter, chapter 3 at his baptism. 
You get him in chapter 5, we're told that he often withdrew to pray. You get him spending a night in chapter 6 to pray to God. You get him in chapter 9 a couple of times being uh, drawn into prayer. And right from the get-go, all of that is quite confronting. Uh, Here you have the Lord Jesus, the Son of God, often in prayer, spending nights in it. Now, we're not told why. We're not told why he prayed so much. Was it guidance that he was after before a big decision, uh, as many have suggested? Was it simply that he needed the refreshing? We're not told why, and we need to be careful, actually, that we don't um, over-teach that insight that Jesus prayed often. But what it says, at the very least, is that part of knowing God well is to be a prayer. And I think that is, uh, right at the outset, an important challenge that we need to be confronted by. The disciples ask, teach us to pray. There's the question that drives this section, verse 2, Jesus' answer. But just before we look at it together, I mean, you know the answer, but just before we look at it in detail together, how would you answer that question? Just think with me a moment. A congregation member comes and says, look, I need to learn how to pray. Can you teach me to pray? How would you answer that question? Now, I think it's worth doing that exercise. Um, because it's by that process that you actually start to learn how I think differently to Jesus. Let me give you an example, and uh, it's the example of a very inadequate illustration, actually, of Philip Jensen, which is not meant to be connected in very direct ways at all, but I've heard him answer questions, people's questions, for years, and uh, you'd get a question from the floor, you'd get a question thrown to him in a certain context... And I don't know about you, but I find myself going, how would I answer that question? There was one occasion where he was asked about the death of Jesus, whether it was sufficient to cover uh, the, the lostness of Satan. And I remember hearing that. It was, a, it, was, it was a good, helpful, interesting question. I remember sitting there thinking, yeah, good question. Here's how I'd answer it. And I began to trot off the series of things I'd say. And then Philip answered it and answered it very differently to the way I answered it in my head. He answered it by going to Hebrews chapter 2 and the fact that Jesus was made a man to die not for the angels but for humanity. Now that was a totally different way that I'd conceived the answer. Now I don't know, I mean there's a long time ago, I would never have got the answer wrong now, but back then, (laughs) back then I'd conceived it very differently and it struck me at that point, why was he seeing that that I didn't see? How did he come up with such a different answer? And, and that was one of those confronting, challenging moments for me to go, I need to get my head into the Word more. Now, I think, as I say, it's very inadequate. Jesus is like that. Not at all to suggest, of course, but that if you expect, and it's not surprising that a mere human would see things that I'm not seeing and answer things in ways that I would never imagine to answer, how much more the Lord of the universe? So it is not surprising that the way he sees the world, the Lord Jesus will be different to me. And so, when he is asked a question, how would I answer that? To note the differences in the way he answers it is, I think, not just instructive about getting the answer right, but instructing instructing him in seeing how my worldview, my structures of thought, the, the sense of priorities and values I operate with, how they're very different to Jesus. And that's instructive. 
because we're not just here to get an answer, we're here to appreciate the transformation of a whole frame of reference that Jesus operates with. Do you hear what I'm trying to say? Jesus is asked, teach us to pray. And I'm going to suggest that his answer has a series of surprises in it that reveal that he is operating with a very different framework and a whole way of thinking about life that is often very different to me, to us. And I think it's essential that we do get this substrate that operates in Jesus' way of thinking that leads him to say the things he says. I'm going to suggest to you there's four surprises in this passage. There may be more, but here's the ones I want to draw your attention to. The first one is this. They ask him, teach us to pray. Verse 2, Jesus, in his answer, makes no mention of posture, position, place, tone, timing or technique. (laughs) None of that is there at all. His answer begins to the question, teach us how to pray. His answer begins with, when you pray, say. Now that's instructive. The first thing that's instructive is that prayer is words. Now that's perhaps obvious, but it's not always been so and I don't think it always will be so. We are never very far from a kind of mysticism in the evangelical world that makes us tend towards thinking that words are a lower order of engagement with God. In the kind of mystical world, you tend to operate with the form of engagement that is highest as being a wordless absorption into the person of God, into his power. And I suspect that's part of the modern worship movement that we're seeing around the place. Uh, It's a pursuit of union with God through the experience of being caught up into almost a wordless, meditative experience of God himself. That's mysticism. It's very different to biblical Christianity. When you pray, you say. You see, if prayer is about union with God and mystically being caught up in his being, then it's important to think about the techniques of repetition, the way the words are used, the way the sound is, the way the lights are. The environment is important to get you in the mood so that you actually get into a new space and you become caught up in the priority of emptying yourself rather than thinking. But Jesus, when he answers the question, teach us to pray, begins by saying, when you pray, say. Why is prayer words? Because of who it is we're praying to. It's fundamental. And it's why the Lord's Prayer begins actually also with Father. We'll come to that in a moment. But a proper proper appreciation of prayer, a right understanding of prayer, begins with a proper understanding and appreciation of who God is. If God is an impersonal absolute into which I'm to be absorbed, then prayer is in essence an experience of being caught up into. But when God reveals himself as a person, then prayer is a response of a person with words to a person. That's what prayer is. We need to take this to heart because mysticism is our danger. 
the evangelical danger. It's our danger because in the evangelical world we encourage rightly a focus on personal piety, on a desire to have a personal relationship with God and these things will always tend us to creating a hunger within ourselves, within our congregations of wanting more, of wanting a deeper sense of the experience of God. And so we will be open to the godly heresy, it's, I suggest it's a godly heresy, of being offered more which we can't yet have because we live by faith, not sight. And that will always be our danger, it will come and go in the Christian world. Keep coming back to verse 2, when you pray, say. Prayer is a word experience of us speaking to God with words. Now, of course, one seeming exception to this is Romans chapter 8, where in the midst of great suffering and anguish, uh, we are beyond words, but the Spirit will help us by words that... by words. Uh, and so it isn't quite the exception it might appear. But when you pray, say. Well, what do you say? Here's the second surprise. What do you say? You say, Father. Now that's a surprise, isn't it? Well, if it isn't to us, it certainly was to his first readers. I mean, they knew that God was the Father of the nation of Israel. Do you remember uh, the great words in Matthew chapter 2, back from Hosea? Out of Egypt I called my son. They knew the nation of Israel was known as the child, the son of God, who was the father. The kings of Israel might have been acknowledged as the son of God, Psalm 2. But the Israelite themselves, he or she would have known God as Yahweh, as the almighty great I Am. And by that name, they would have known the regal power of God, that he is the other, he is the holy God of Israel. But then along comes this man from Nazareth, who from a very early age, and let's do a little bit of flipping, come back with me to chapter 2, in an incident that Luke records for us, unlike others, we have recorded for us the self-awareness of Jesus in his relationship with his God that is unique. Do you remember he's left behind? Everyone's concerned about him. Uh, look at verse 48. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, Son, why have you treated like this? Uh, literally, uh, literally in the Greek, it's the father of you and I have been greatly distressed, searching. The father of your father and I have been greatly distressed. Jesus says, didn't you know I had to be about my father's house? I had to be in his house. Right there you have this self-awareness of Jesus at the very young age of an intimacy between himself and God as his father. It's quite extraordinary. Come with me to chapter 10. Jesus there in verse 21. At that time, Jesus, full of the joy through the Holy Spirit, said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this you were pleased to do. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows who the Son is except the Father, and no one knows who the Father is except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. You have this incredible expression of a man speaking of Yahweh 
in this very personal and intimate way. But now, in chapter 11, he invites the disciples to address this same holy God as Father. He invites them to now experience together with him a depth of relationship that he had shared with God from eternity. My father and your father. Now that is extraordinary. Now it assumes, of course, too, that something significant has happened or will happen. A work of grace to save. You know, some years ago, and I mentioned it some years ago because I was having a haircut, um, and it was some years ago, uh, back in the days when I used to need them. And uh, I used to go to a bar because I couldn't bear to go to hairdressers, but I was with this, um, this bloke, uh, he was cutting my hair, and we were chatting, and we got on to talking about church, and I said to him, um, as he's snipping away, I said, do you ever pray? And he, he didn't take offence, he was happy for the conversation, he said, um, yeah, I do actually. Now, here's a man who never went to church, never would profess to being a believer, a Christian, let's say. But when I asked him, did you pray? He said, yes. I asked him then next, what makes you think that God should listen to you? And he paused. Now, it's kind of dangerous with a bloke who's got his scalpel at the back of your neck, isn't it, where he's kind of... But uh, he, he, said, um, he said, I've never thought about that. And I said, well, you would if you were a murderer, wouldn't you? You'd wonder in your prayer life whether God should even listen to you, given the sins that you... And he said, yes, of course. He said, but I'm not that person. And I said, well, let me tell you what Jesus says you are. <laughs> and we went to the Sermon on the Mount and we chatted through that. And right there we had him. You see, right now we're in a conversation discussing the very heart of human sin, the problem, the barrier that creates between us and God and really whether we think it's a serious thing or not, was a great conversation that flowed on from there. But the point I want to make is this, it's a small thing. It illustrates the profoundly important point that how is it possible for sinful men and women to address God at all? To be heard by God? How is that possible? And more, how is it possible to address the holy God of, say, Isaiah 6? Do you remember? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of God. The, the God that when his attendants spoke, the doorposts shook. And Isaiah, at seeing this, do you remember his reaction? He fell at his feet as that, Woe is me, I cried, for I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the Lord. How is it possible for sinful men and women to address God at all, let alone let, him, let us address him as Father? Well, it's of course only possible because of the work of forgiveness. And that's exactly what Jesus is bringing. And that's why he set his face to Jerusalem, so that he might save the lost, but that he might save them so that they might know God as Father. Don't miss the wonder of this. In fact, um, it is the thing that J.I. Packer in that timeless book, if you've not read Knowing God, go and buy it. Uh, it's a book everyone should... It's an awesome and very helpful book. He rightly, I think, calls 
the fatherhood of God, the highest blessing the Christian faith bestows. And he says it so well, let me read a chunk of it to you. Listen to these words. Adoption is the highest privilege that the gospel offers, higher even than justification. This may cause the raising of eyebrows, but although justification is the primary blessing of the gospel because it meets our primary spiritual need, adoption is higher because of the richer relationship with God that it involves. Justification is forensic, conceived in terms of law. It declares the repentant believer that they are not and never will be condemned because Jesus, their substitute and sacrifice, tasted death in their place on the cross. But justification does not of itself imply any intimate or deep relationship with God the judge. In contrast, in adoption, God takes us into his family and fellowship and establishes us as his children and heirs. Closeness, affection and generosity are at the heart of the relationship. To be right with the judge is a great thing. But to be loved and cared for by God the Father is greater. Now that is a helpful insight, isn't it? It is truly the glory of the Christian message. And it's not just Packer who says it. The Apostle John in 1 John 3. Behold what manner of love the Father has lavished on us that we should be killed the sons and daughters of God. It is the love of God lavished on us. And it's the great impulse of much Christian hymn writing. Behold, I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. When you pray, say, Father. Don't lose the wonder of it. It is perhaps... The reason Jesus was so often in prayer, isn't it? Not simply because of personal need or some need for guidance, but because God was his father and that's what compelled him to spend time in prayer. There's the second surprise. Let me take you through the third surprise. It is that every statement in the Lord's Prayer is a request. Now, it isn't immediately obvious to many that that is the case because the... uh, The first line sounds to many people, hallowed be your name. It sounds to many people like it's in the indicative, an expression of praise. Um, And there's a sense, I think, that people want it to be an expression of praise because we have bought into a whole view of prayer that says asking God for things is a lower order of prayer than praising God. And so many, when they read this prayer, feel like because this is the prayer of the Lord Jesus, it's the greatest prayer, it can't have just the crass ask in it, it's got to have some expression of praise and that's the first statement. But it's not. It's an imperative, it's a command, it's a call on God to do something that he might honour himself. Uh, It is all request, every statement through it is a request, asking God for something. When Jesus taught on prayer, he said, ask, 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 ask. Uh, Now, it isn't hard, of course, to prove that prayer is to include more than asking. 1 Timothy 2, you're to make prayers and petitions and supplications for all people and uh, to give thanksgiving. 
It's not hard to show from the Psalms and from Revelation that prayer is to include much more. But what is clear is that when Jesus teaches on prayer, he says to ask. We are to be askers. Now, there's much to unpack here, but at the very least, it breaks the naivety that says asking God for things is lower order. It isn't because it expresses reverent dependence on God. Now, getting this can also help avoid an incipient works theology. Let me explain what I mean. Um, I do think uh, we are prone, and certainly our congregation, we are prone to works theology at every point, and we're prone to works theology in prayer at the level of, before I ask things, I'll make sure I adore, confess, thank, and then supplicate. Uh, there's a sense in which I've got to work my way through to actually get the merit to you see it also in some theology of worship and praise. Now, I've thought a lot about whether to say this or not, and I've decided I will. Um, at a recent Hills, at the last Hillsong conference, Brian Houston said these words: "We praise our way into blessing. We praise our way into a miracle." He even said, "We praise our way into the presence of God." Now, they weren't off-the-cuff statements, which is why I draw your attention to them. They were part of a whole argument, and they formed the conclusion and culmination of the argument that we praise our way into the blessings of God. We praise our way into a miracle. We praise our way into the presence. Now, I don't want to derail this whole message, but we need to call that for what it is. That is clear works theology. It is not the gospel of grace alone. It has elevated praise over petition. It has made praise the very vehicle to bring about the requests we're calling on God to fulfil. It has made our work the key to wringing from God what he would then do amongst us. Now, why I think it's important to draw it to our attention is a couple of reasons. The main one is this, we are doing new works around the country, we are planting new churches and we are in many ways doing cutting edge ministry, we're trying to break out of old patterns and forms and be relevant to community and so on. One of the chief influences in all of that is Hillsong music and we need to be careful and cautious about what we are doing and thoughtful in doing it that we're aware of the theology that's coming through that package. Now, there's many good things said, of course. Uh, I understand there was an exposition of the work, person and work of Jesus that was wonderful. But at the very head of that conference is a talk of this order. It's what drives the effort and energy that goes into the praise ministry because it's not just encouraging each other and declaring praise to God. Be aware of what we're bringing to these things. Keep coming back to the scriptures to be cautious and careful. As we do push the boundaries, do it with our theological minds alert. You see, the wonder of the gospel of grace is that it's by the merits of another that we are now able to enter the throne room and bring our requests. It is in his name we pray it is by his merits that we know God as Father. And it's upon his character, the character of God, 
as father that we rely for what we receive. I think that's such an important point. It's clearly such an important point. The Lord Jesus in verses 5 down illustrates it. He gives this uh, wonderful little illustration about a, um, uh, a man who wakes up a friend across the road with a request at midnight. Uh, he needs some bread. Can you help me? The neighbour's grumpy, the door's locked, the kids are in bed, I'm in bed, which is pretty much what I would say if a child rang me up at nine o'clock at night, actually. I'd be wanting to say the same things. But here he is at midnight saying, I'm not getting up, but look at verse eight. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. Now, here's the thing. The word shameless audacity that's translated in the new, new international version which I'm reading from uh, is a word that's difficult to translate and you'll see a footnote down on the bottom it could well go the other way and I suspect context does push it the other way although it's a fine argument and the other way it could go is that because of his shame the shame of the person you've woken he will get up and give you what you've asked for that is the shame of having to front up in the next day in the courtyard of the village and explain why he didn't get up and help a neighbour in distress and it's possible that what Jesus is saying is that uh, it's because of what's in the character of the one being asked that he will of course respond to your request which is I dare say why verses 9 and 10 follow so hard on the heels of that so I say ask and it will be given you because of the honour of God being at stake he is your father, verse 11, who when you ask for a fish won't give a snake, the father will give good things. This is so powerfully important that we appreciate, friends, that the key to successful prayer is not right technique, it's a proper understanding of God. Ask. James, of course, tells us that you don't have because you don't ask. Ask. Your father. But here's the fourth and last surprise. The fourth and last surprise is the content of the Lord's Prayer, each of which is request, but all but one of them are focused on one thing. Do you see what that is? They're all focused on the establishment of the kingdom of God. At least one of them is very obviously so. The second one there, I mean, hallowed be your name. May your name be holy, regarded as holy. Your kingdom come. There's a clear request that God's kingdom will come. It's focused on the kingdom. But all of them are of a piece. Uh, forgive our sins. Uh, being kept from temptation. Uh, these are requests that the experience of the rule of God might be healthy in our lives. That is to say... Um, please forgive me those occasions where I've not lived under your rule as I ought. Please protect me from being drawn away from your rule as I ought. It's about the kingdom of God and our experience of it. And at this point, here's the big thing. The Lord's Prayer stops just being a lesson on prayer. And it is now a lesson on life. It actually says something about the point of history that Jesus was in and we now exist in as well. Why is Jesus 
prayer, teach us to pray, Jesus. When you pray, say, and every point of his prayer, and I'll come to the one that doesn't appear to be so, when it comes to his prayer, it's all about the kingdom. Why is it so dominated by the kingdom like that? Because it dominates the heart of his father. Jesus came as the climactic movement of God the Father towards his fallen world. He came to establish his rule once more in this world. And he did that chiefly and particularly, of course, through the work of the cross, the resurrection and the ascension, the pouring out of the Spirit. And here's where the whole sweep of Luke and the book of Acts is crucial. Let me run you through it. Do you remember the birth narratives? The whole book begins with this climactic announcement, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a saviour has been born. He is Christ the Lord. You get the joy of the prophet and prophetess at the meeting of this child where you get one of them saying, Sovereign Lord, you may now dismiss your servant in peace for my eyes have seen your salvation which you prepared in the sight of all nations Jesus' first public declaration the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news his statement of purpose he has come to seek and save the lost the very structure of the gospel itself chapter 9 verse 51 he turns his face to Jerusalem to go there the scene of his betrayal and death the focus then that comes on the cross the supper before the cross where Jesus says in that last occasion, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you. And the very end of the gospel, Lucan's great commission where Jesus says the Messiah will suffer, rise on the third day and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached to all nations. You've got through the whole of the Lord Jesus and his life and experience this domination of the kingdom and its concerns, a desire to actually fulfill God's eternal plans to bring the blessing of forgiveness of sins, restoration of relationship with himself, all people brought back under the rule of God. This dominates Jesus and his life. And so when the apostles ask him, teach us to pray, he says, pray about the kingdom. Focus your prayer life there. You know, the daily bread, it doesn't seem to quite fit until you see who it is who's praying this prayer. It's the one who's so totally focused on the kingdom that what he prays about is, all I care about is my daily bread. Ask the Lord for your daily bread as you're obsessed and absorbed with the kingdom work. Now here's the impact for us. The Lord's prayer is actually a call to arms. It's a call to see again the centrality of the kingdom in not just the life of Jesus, but the life of God and his purposes, as it is to be central in our lives. Kingdom concerns were so intensely consuming of Jesus, that when asked, teach us to pray, all he could think to tell them about was to pray about the kingdom and your daily needs as you're on about the kingdom. The kingdom consumed, Jesus, the need to see sin and its seriousness dealt with. The reality of the sacrifice of his atonement as the only possible means to save. 
the importance of a life then lived under the rule of the Father, the concern for others that they might be, when you pray, say prayers that are obsessed about the kingly rule of God throughout the world. Is that your prayer life? Is that our people's prayer life? How often do our congregations pray like this? It's easy to pray like this when you're planning a church because the immediate demands of survival make you focused on seeing this place grow. (laughs) I, I need to see people one to Christ to actually give me viability in this church. It's easy to be focused on it then. But here's the big thing. Were you focused on it before you came into church planting? Was that your DNA? Was that the way your life was shaped and moulded so that as you've come to think about church planting, it's driven and compelled by that heart and passion? Is that where you're at? Or now as a church planter, are you constantly talking to yourself and preaching the gospel to yourself so that as church reaches viability, you will continue to be that obsessive person about the growth of the kingdom? Do you see, this is actually more important than just prayer, isn't it? How often do we see life through the lens of the kingdom and its extension? So that our prayers are naturally focused there all the time. That's the ministry of Jesus which challenges us. Let me give you a story to finish. I don't know if any of you heard of Muriel and Harold Doyle. I know some of you knew of them. I was converted into a very small church at Manly Vale, and uh, I guess I was about 18, and I was at an afternoon tea with about 60, 70 people, many of them older, and I was one of the younger people there. The minister grabbed me and said, Andrew, you've got to come and meet this couple. And I thought, gee, I'm, how special am I? And I got taken to this old lady whose name was Muriel, and... Uh, And she took me to her husband, who was bent over and twisted. He was a very old man, and she said, uh, Are you Andrew Heard? And I said, Yeah. And she said, We have been praying for you weekly. Now, I'm thinking, how on earth did they know to pray for me? I said, Well, that's amazing. She said, Yeah, we pray our way through the church directory every week. She said, Look at us. We can't do much anymore. All we can do is pray. So we pray before breakfast, we pray at morning tea, we pray before lunch, we pray after lunch, we pray before dinner. He died with the CMS Missionary Prayer Diary in his lap. Uh, I think the diary just killed him. But, (laughs) But here he is, this old man, devoted to prayer constantly about the cause of the kingdom. Now get this, he dies, they have a funeral... He's an old man. Now, you know that when you get older, you get less and less friends because they're all dying off. In fact, I've got a strategy. Keep in youth ministry if you want to make sure your funeral's full of people. (laughs) But um, he dies. The place is packed. And it's packed with missionaries and ministers and leaders of churches because they have been praying for these people for decades and keeping keeping in contact with them and their ministries, devoted to the work of the kingdom. At the end of the funeral, I wasn't there, but I understand this happened. She got up to say a few words and then turned to each of Harold's relatives who were sitting in the front row and said, "Um, Harold would have had me say to you 
that if you don't turn, you are going to stand under the judgment of God. And she began to preach the gospel to this one and then began to preach to the next one. One of the family members had to actually drag her off the platform because she just wanted to... Now, friends, there is someone who's caught the vision of the Lord's Prayer, isn't it? Have you? Do you get it? This is not something we just add in. The Lord's Prayer is not just a simple lesson on a few things. It's, it's a whole life that's being taught in the Lord's Prayer about where, how we orientate ourselves, how we think about our daily activities, where we prioritise, what consumes and obsesses us. And that then is shown in our prayers. How about I pray now? Heavenly Father, we do ask, please, that you might help us catch the vision of the New Testament, uh, the life of the Lord Jesus, uh, your passion and concern to be on about the kingdom, the establishment of your rule over the hearts, uh, over the lives of men and women in this world. And we pray, please, that you would stir us uh, to be so captured by these things that they would dominate us like it dominated the Lord Jesus that it would show in our prayer life, it would show in our decisions, our choices, our words, our actions, the way we speak with people around us, the opportunities we look for, the way we disciple and minister to the church plant core groups we operate with, the reason we want to think about church planting. Please let all of this be dominated by concern to see the extension of God's rule, your rule, uh, by the forgiveness won through the Lord Jesus Christ over the hearts and lives of men and women throughout our country and world. And we ask it all in Jesus' name.